This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just a warning. This episode contains mentions of eating disorders and very strong language. Heroin chic. The incredibly problematic term is back. Our bodies are not trends. Our body shapes are not trends. Why are women's bodies always under scrutiny? The models are skinny, but they're not that skinny. So I lose 16 pounds. The glorification of heroin is not creative, it's destructive, it's not beautiful, it is ugly. And glorifying death is not good for any society. You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph, for The Guardian. Bye Bye Booty, Heroin Chic is back. That's what the New York Post announced a few weeks ago. Of course, it set the internet alight and activist slash actress Jamila Jamil was pretty pissed off. No. We tried this before in the 90s and millions of people developed eating disorders. I had one for like 20 years. We're not doing this again. We're not going back. This is absolutely mad. How on earth did we get to this point again? In today's episode, I have to get to the bottom of why women's bodies are always under scrutiny and who decides that's the case. Heroin Chic, which is all about looking gaunt, is a link to the revival of the Y2K look. Think low-slung jeans, flat stomachs under crop tops, and Paris Hilton. Before we dive into all of that, I wanted to chat with Jamila about how her experience with eating disorders and body shaming led to her activism. I was the beginning of secondary school. We had a stand-in teacher who was trying to teach us about like collecting data and graphs and pie charts. And she was like, we're going to weigh everyone in the class. I went to an all-girls school. Like none of us were aware of our bodies. No one was pulling in their tummies yet. Like, you know, we were in that kind of like chubby growth spurt age. So innocent. We all get weighed. And she creates a chart and puts our name on like a leaderboard of who weighs the most. And I weighed the most because I was the tallest and I was also just the biggest immediately I was made fun of in the class and it was so quick for the kids to realize oh there's a hierarchy and Mm. that hierarchy involves thinness and how little space you take up and so we were all immediately corrupted and you could see within months like everyone was talking about calories everyone was talking about slim fast shakes 
this is what we were living in. And it was the kind of rise of these grotesque, like pro-ano, like pro-anorexia websites. People don't realize that anorexia is the highest cause of death in any mental illness. You kind of then went into the world of modeling. And what was that experience like? Was it basically your school experience intensified? Yeah, yeah. I um I've been incredibly sick over the summer and lost a shit ton of weight and I was completely anorexic. I got scouted by a modeling agency. I didn't ever get any work because my hips were like 36 inches, which is tiny, especially at five foot ten. Um, I was told that I would like I was recommended to have my hip bones shaved down when I turned 16. So I used to go out to castings and be told to my face that I was too big. And I was I was rail thin and I was ki- just killing myself without realizing. And it's not like it stopped there and then. I kind of was in sort of like semi-recovery for about 10 years mm. after that, but still had the eating disorder brain, still have body mm. dysmorphia now, and was still restricting calories, but just didn't realize I disordered eating because it's so mm. fucking hypernormalized in my generation, in our culture, and especially in my disgusting, dirty industry. Even though you maybe were not completely in that modeling world because you weren't booking jobs, you were in media being on Channel 4, being a household name, you're being on TV, there must have been, even in those circles, a pressure to present a certain way because you had to have a cool aesthetic because you were hosting and presenting and fronting a youth-centred and youth-focused show. Yeah, I was also replacing Alexa Chung, who's, you know, one Mm. of the slimmest people in British television's history. I was naturally being completely compared to her, like, in every single way, including my weight. And, Mm. you know, I remember doing a photo shoot for British Vogue, like... 14 years ago where I had to just hold the dress against myself because I couldn't fit into a single thing. All other photo shoots I did, I'd be photoshopped without my consent. And so I'd have these rail thin thighs. And what that immediately did to me was tell me like, oh, the thighs I turned up with on the day weren't good enough. It's not about beauty. It can't be about beauty because of how many beautiful people exist in different bodies and shapes and sizes and disabilities or non-disabilities. It's it's not possible for it to be about beauty because beauty is so subjective and diverse. This is about control and distraction. How did you then start to say, okay, cool, this is something that I want to campaign against and speak out against and not just feel like I'm suffering on my own? Well, so I was 26. I was on steroids. Uh, I'd had like pneumonia for ages. I think because I was just DJing in the fucking winter and not looking after myself Mm. and living on like popcorn and Haribo. Steroids massively inflate your body size. And and so naturally, of course, my body like expanded. And when I was photographed going out of Radio 1 and it was the first time I'd really been seen because I had a radio job so I hadn't been on TV for a long time so no one had really seen the the gap, the gradual weight gain. There was a photograph of me dramatically bigger. It, that photograph went so fucking viral and then was on the cover of all these tabloid magazines next to photographs deliberately of me at my most anorexic to show like the before and after and they've got a photograph where I'm unaware I'm being photographed so I look unhappy in the photograph where I'm fatter and I look and I'm smiling and ready and preened and prepared and the thin photograph on the red carpet. And that's a very specific thing I noticed that, oh, they're trying to set a narrative of like thin and happy, fat and sad and stressed. And so once that photograph went viral, then I was hounded by photographers who would call me to my face, a fat cunt outside of my house trying to get provoke a reaction so that I would look upset and then they get the upset photograph of the fat woman. And what's funny is that that was the most successful year of my career. I'd made history on Radio 1. I was in a really happy relationship at the time. I was having getting laid. I was getting paid. Like I had clothing lines that were selling out. Like I was 
killing it. I was happy. My my I was showing myself, my teenage self, that like, oh wow, in this like much bigger body, three times bigger than you've ever been, you are still happy, you are still loved, you are still successful, you are still accepted. But the narrative you would have seen from the photographs and the tabloids, and it was driving me insane, is that I look miserable. They would always photograph me and cut out like the friends that I was walking with, so it always looked like I was alone. And they do this to all the celebrities, all the British celebrities in the tabloids that we see. Whenever they've gained weight, they always look unhappy and alone and lonely. It's the story we tell. But then I started getting offers from diet companies who are reaching out to me on social media saying, we will pay you a shit ton of money, like five figures, six figures to promote our weight loss product. And we will provide you privately with a personal trainer. And we will set up a photo shoot in which you are wearing a bikini that is too small for you. Like this is all, it was shamelessly and explicitly said, like very like, as if like, it's very normal. Like this is the system. This is what we do. Um, where we put you in clothes or a bikini that's too small. And we want you to be eating some sort of junk food and running. They love us midair when we're fat then they would like eventually show my progress later, you know, like all dressed up, hair done, ready for the photo uh, in really flattering clothes that fit me well. And I looked back at all the photographs of all the big, like especially reality TV stars or like TV hosts, where we see those iconic photographs of them running in a bikini that is like unusually small. Yeah. Like no, like you get thrush in something that doesn't fit you that well. And then holding a hat, like who runs with a hamburger? That's so bad for yeah. your digestion, you know? And it goes everywhere. <laughs> and then You're going to get see... mayo on you and stuff. Like, it's just inconvenient. Yeah, like that is just, that is constipation nation <laughs> living like that. Like, it's terrible. It, it like triggered a switch in me and I was like, that's it. And so I started, like I spoke in parliament. I started speaking out in all of my interviews. I used any press opportunity I had. And I'm ashamed to say, when I was on the receiving end of fat phobias the first time that I thought, oh, okay, now I empathize with this, I can fight for this. So I wish I'd done it earlier, but you just don't know until you know. And I want to talk a bit about the future because it feels like in general, because of the work that you're doing and other people like you, the conversation has shifted and things are changing. But it does feel like this sort of like sudden rise in heroin chic is undoing a lot of the good work that is done around what we see as kind of body positivity and body neutrality and stuff like do you think it's coming up as a backlash against that a hundred percent a hundred percent it's like we managed to stigmatize our generation have managed to stigmatize like diet and detox drinks i think i personally am fairly responsible for a lot of celebrities no longer selling those products because (laughs) i'm so annoying that they just don't want to deal with me uh i'm very proud of that um but now this backlash to like too many people embracing their curves no one's buying the diet product stuff anymore the diet industry is worth like tens of billions of dollars and they are plummeting during the pandemic obviously there was a rise in certain people having eating disorders there was also a huge rise in people learning to accept themselves and being like you know what i don't think i want to contour my face with 15 layers of makeup actually you know what maybe i'm going to be okay with this body maybe i'm going to be kind to myself maybe i'm going to start putting my health like first, and I don't want to risk getting this deadly COVID because I was starving myself or denying myself nutrients. The fact that we glamorize and idolize famine is so disgusting and and also heroin addiction. But what we're seeing this time around is the diet shakes are out because now everyone knows they make you shit your pants and the injections are in. And so they're injections that are used for people with diabetes that impact your insulin and also create such severe like gas, 
nausea, vomiting, horrific diarrhea. And basically, if you don't have diabetes, you shouldn't be fucking with your insulin with an injection. And then on top of that, and this makes me maybe the angriest, is that we have a global shortage of diabetes medication for actual diabetics. It's our, it's our kind of like instant gratification generation. We still don't understand. Our bodies are not designed for drastic changes, whether you are trying to gain weight or lose weight. There's no such thing as a revival that comes from the industry. We mm. are the fucking boss. We control the market. We are the market. Mm -hmm. Women in particular, I think, still represent 80% of the market. We are 80% of consumers. They don't get to tell us what the fucking trends are anymore. We will tell them what the trends are. Give me a quick mo and after the break, we'll be back talking about the fashion industry's role in keeping us obsessed with skinny. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi again. Although it feels like progress has been made in the fashion industry with more diverse models on catwalks, in magazines and on big campaigns, we also know that the slim look has never really gone away. Look at models like Kaya Gerber, Bella Hadid and Kendall Jenner. What I'm wondering is who decides what size models should be? And if Y2K is coming back, what does that mean for us all? Jess Cartner-Morley is Associate Editor of Fashion for The Guardian. I was at London, Paris, Milan Fashion Weeks this season, as I always am. And I came home feeling like I had seen a lot of very flat tummies with bony hip bones. What was interesting was when I actually looked into it, it turns out there were actually more curved models on the catwalks this season than there had been in previous seasons. I think 50% more this season than the season before. Oh, wow. But what had really changed was the clothes. Because after a few years of clothes being quite loose, you know, all those milkmaidy dresses and kind of puff sleeve jumpers, this season is all about like a low-rise hipster jean and uh, a crop top. And that really puts the spotlight on the body. So we're talking about Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time video with the, you know, the little shirt knotted up. Paris Hilton. The 2000s were all about. In her juicy couture, tracky bottoms with a little vest. Fashion choices. So I think it was just all about being super extra. 
And why do we think it's coming back again? I think the appeal of the clothes grows out of our nostalgia for that era in popular culture. That late 90s, early noughties, it's like a very hedonistic time, but it's also a kind of simpler time. It's a, it's like the last years before the internet took over our lives. It's the last years before climate change became this terrifying thing in the 21st century. So I think the appeal of the clothes is it's sort of fun, but it's also quite innocent in a way. And I remember that time for me so much because like 2000 to 2010, I was like four to 14. And that was like such a, I guess like a pivotal era for me in terms of what I was consuming. Like, yes, a lot of like Britney Spears, a lot of Destiny's Child. These were all kind of skinny, petite women, people who I idolized, people I looked up to. And I did really start to notice how that affected me as I got closer to 14. So in year nine at school and what I saw as like beautiful and what I saw as like, you know, stylish. And it was very much set by those trends. And then, you know, things definitely did start to turn, but you never really leave that legacy. So seeing Y2K come back in and it become really popular and people like my little sister's age who, you know, wasn't even born or just born then really getting into those trends is very, very interesting because they have all of the fashion and the style, but, but with none of the history or the context. For you and from your perspective, like what was the impact of heroin chic on fashion and bodies when it first came out? I have to say, I'm not wild about the term heroin chic. I think we should be mindful about using that because I don't think it's that helpful or accurate in this case. I don't think a lot of these girls are taking heroin. And I also think that it kind of trivializes serious addiction issues. So I'm kind of I'm kind of wary of the term heroin chic. I think you're absolutely right that when heroin chic was used in the media in those first in those back in those years, it was one very dominant body shape and there was almost zero diversity in terms of what we were told to aspire to and what um, what a body should look like. We know that when it comes to trends, they don't exist in a, in a vacuum. They're influenced by something or decided by someone. So who is it that you feel it maybe decides what is hot or not when it comes to fashion? I think when you're talking about catwalk fashion, Fashion designers have to take responsibility because when you look at a catwalk show, that is the designer's vision. Fashion designers do traditionally tend to have very substantial egos. And I think historically one of the problems has been that they see models as coat hangers that they can hang their beautiful dresses on and walk down the catwalk in. Look, if Twiggy would come today, everybody would say, too skinny, too this, too this. Twiggy was a girl, everybody wanted to look like Twiggy. Every girl wanted to be skinny like uh, uh, Twiggy. So I can tell you all kinds of moral tales, but fashion and reality is vaguely different. So they have therefore hired models who look as close to coat hangers as is possible to get in human form. And I think that's actually been one of the things that has driven the, the shape of catwalk models over the years. And earlier when you spoke about like kind of there should be diversity in the in the type of bodies that are celebrated across media and across fashion. I kind of feel like one of the kind of big reasons we have a certain type of body shape showing certain types of fashions is because of things like sample sizes. Um, and they are, for people who don't really know, are kind of sizes or products that brands can loan out to models and celebrities, but they normally come in one or two sizes. So often or not, you'll get like a size eight. And I know whenever I've gone to really fancy events and I want to hire a dress or rent a dress from a brand, all of the dresses come in size eight. 
And luckily I can fit into that in some brands, not in others, but it means that I've always kind of can wear something nice to a fancy event. But if I was a bit bigger, if I was more size 10 or size 12, there's no way I could just rock into a PR's office and pick up a dress from a brand. Yeah, you're so right. And this is a real issue, which sounds ridiculous and actually is ridiculous, but it's a kind of legacy issue of the way that fashion has always operated, that a designer will make a collection and in high fashion, they'll make a collection and make just one piece of every single piece in that collection. And so they therefore make them all in what we call straight size, which is a size eight so that they can then lend those pieces out to different magazines. And so that will be why designers will say, oh, well, you know, we can't have any bigger girls because they won't fit into the samples. But when you're talking about the modern fashion industry, when you're talking about brands who stage catwalk shows in castles and beaches and, you know, hire A-list celebrities to be in their advertising campaigns, the thought that they can't make a couple of slightly bigger skirts is kind of a bit of a dog ate my homework excuse at this point, I think. I was also reading about the fact that it's like size eight and size 18. And it's kind of just these two sizes that you can get in a sample size. If it's 18, then it's like normally for curve items and size eight is in everything else. Like, is, is this an industry standard thing? Like, why does this happen? Yeah, it's really interesting. I was talking to a curve model last week. I didn't actually realize this, that a lot of brands, even if they make a bigger size, they will, as you say, only make an eight and an 18. So the very few mid-size models, like if you're a 10 or a 12 out there, then they will pad you to wear a size 18 in an editorial because they don't have anything in a size 10 or 12, which is kind of bonkers. Do you think that there's anything else outside of kind of sample sizing that encourages this idea of slim being the ideal in fashion? I think it's really interesting. There's so much emotion around this issue. And very often this kind of gets directed in the wrong direction. It gets vented against the models themselves in lots of instances. The other day I posted something on my Instagram around this issue and I put it under a picture of Bella Hadid on the catwalk at Stella McCartney. And she's wearing like a very low rise hipster trouser with a diamante trim. It's just a very Y2K look. Mm. And what really surprised me and struck me was that lots of the comments talking about the issue, were directed against Bella. They were Mm. saying, she looks unhealthy, she's too skinny. I was just quite taken aback because this is one layer in a very complex global web of industrialized patriarchal oppression. Mm -hmm. I don't know whose fault that is, but I'm pretty sure it's not Bella Hadid's fault. What I really hope will happen when this look starts appearing in shops, which it kind of already is really, but it's going to be I mean, it's a spring-summer trend and it will be everywhere next spring. What I really hope will happen is that once it starts actually selling to real people, we'll start seeing these clothes on all kinds of women and we'll start to realise that if you want to wear a mini kilt and a bucket hat, then you don't need to have a flat stomach to do it. If that's your jam, then just wear it and feel great. Chatting with Jamila and Jess made me think about the conversations I've long been having with my friends about our bodies. It is a heightened experience for us as black women as we're having to deal with the imposed body standards and racism too. In some ways, we are both the trend and excluded from it. So I wanted to make sure our experiences were also centered in this episode. Stephanie Eboa is a blogger and author of Fatally Ever After and Simone Aheiku is a writer and climate justice campaigner. When you were younger, like, do you remember the 
first insecurity you had about your body and where it came from? Oh, I think for me, my first insecurity was probably just generally my weight and the fact that I was bigger than everybody else. And I was made aware of that in the changing rooms in secondary school. And I remember like just being bigger than everybody else. And for some reason, that was a problem. And that was the first time that I was made to feel aware of how big I was. So when I was, you know, 9, 10, 11, just having like baby fat and stuff, mm. I was not aware that my being was an issue for other people. It was actually other people making me aware of how big I was and deciding that it was a problem. And for you, like, how did that then kind of manifest in how you kind of saw yourself or how you treated yourself? Woo, that just went down a very long, <laughs> a long pathway of depression mm. and self-harm and mental health issues. Mm. I hated myself. And that kind of was a gateway into diet culture mm. and doing things that I felt was good for my body, but really it was kind of low-key eating disorders. But I thought because I was bigger, like fat people can't have eating disorders. So I did a lot of harm to my body under the pretense of this is, you know, this is what's going to make me look like everyone else and therefore not be bullied. What about you, Simone? When I was younger, I was a chubbier child and also like developed really quickly. Comparing myself to what I saw on TV, even if they were black or comparing myself to like my other peers, I was like, wow, like I really stick out as someone that just doesn't look like other kids. And I think that that was actually made worse by like, I live in South, predominantly like black area. And there were a lot of men on the street that would just kind of hoot and holler at me, being mm. a very, very young age, being like, you know, commenting on my body, commenting especially like on my bum and like lower half. When I was younger, around like 10 or 11, you know, when you go to the supermarket and you're just picking things and putting it in a basket and hoping that your mom doesn't notice. And yeah. I remember like <laughs> putting in like Slim Fast, those mm, kind of like yeah. Slim Fast and like those, what is it, granola bars and putting it in there and being like, oh, I'm going to like aim to lose weight today. I'm going to aim to lose weight this week. And it was like incredibly unsustainable. Definitely spurred on a lot of like thoughts about me, like attaching my weight to how attractive I was or my worth essentially. Yeah. Mm. I feel like like I kind of had have some like similar things. Like I remember in school, like I had a bit of a growth spurt before everyone else. I was very tall. And I remember all of my friends were like very kind of petite, small people. And like mm. till this day, I really have bad posture because I used to hunch so much to like try and be really? on their level. Yeah. That was a huge thing for me. Because I was like quite small as well and then tall, I just looked really bizarre and I used to really mm. hate that about myself. I didn't have like any particular issues regarding my weight in school. But I definitely did used to look at that like Y2K, like the Paris Hilton trend. And I used to want to be as slim as them. I remember reading in like a glossy magazine about the baby food diet, which was basically just mm -hmm. like yeah, eating baby food. But I was trying so hard to like fit into this weird aesthetic and try to like emulate these people. Growing up, do you guys think it got any easier for you? As I got older, I began to develop more of an interest in fashion and I could not find clothes anywhere that did plus size or stylish plus size. You know, when everyone else was shopping at Tammy, I was like at mm. Mark One and Peacocks and all of these <laughs> places, and which is fine, but I could never really join in on the fashion trend and being able to show off my style and express myself. I couldn't do it in the ways that I wanted to do it while watching all of my peers do it. And so that really contributed to the low self-esteem that I ended up having mm. as a teenager slash um, adult. I did go through this phase of really, really bad eating disorders. Like I went through, I did the baby food diet as well. I did the waterfall diet where you literally just drink water. 
I did every single, the whole Beyonce, KM Pepper and all of those kind of diet. I did every single thing under the sun in order to lose as much weight as possible. And I was encouraged. That was the thing. I was encouraged to be as toxic to my body as possible because, you know, friends and family and society at large have this impression that being as slim as possible is the standard of beauty. So Mm. it's interesting the amount of people that will co-sign toxicity towards your body for that greater goal, which is weight loss, which is Mm. just really sad. Yeah. What about you, Simone? Do you think it's gotten better over time? I think for me it has. Like at uni, I lost a lot of weight, especially in second year, because like stress and anxiety, that didn't help because it was just like, again, like what people will co-sign in terms of like what they perceive as like beauty. Comparing yourself to all of the slim babes on campus, it's just not helpful, but that's what I was doing. Um, But leaving and like going back to like home, which was London and like being surrounded by different kinds of bodies, like definitely put me back on the right track to be actually like my body's fine. Like I look great and I'm happy with how I look. I guess I would ask as well then, like what needs to kind of happen next? Is there a way for us to like have like, I don't know what the term is. I think it's body neutrality. Like, is there a way to do you ever get to that point? Body neutrality for me is an interesting one because in theory, it's great. And I think everybody should be able to arrive to a point where they just feel nothing about their bodies. They just Mm. see it as a vehicle that takes us through life. But I think as long as fat phobia is a thing, body neutrality could never be applicable for every single body. Mm. So as long as there is this bias and discrimination against bigger bodies, I don't think body neutrality can be accessible for those that have body types that fall outside of what is considered desirable. At the end of the day, babes, your body serves an important function to keep you alive. Be grateful that you have a living, breathing collection of cells working insanely hard to keep you awake to listen to this podcast and leave the insulin to the diabetics. Okay? All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a review. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Mal Lesetto, original music by Axel Kakute, and the executive producer is Maz Ebtaj. See you next Thursday. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.